0: This is Jeff Mucci with RCR Wireless News. Thank you for joining us today for Coders. The question of the day is web scale reliability versus carrier grade five nines reliability. And today we got two seasoned veterans from the industry that are going to join us for a lively discussion on uh, carrier grade code. Telecom Careers, the number one global telecom and wireless job board. TelecomCareers.com. Our first guest is Dr. Dave Ratner, who is joining us from sunny Northern California in San Jose. I think it's 68 degrees there while we're suffering through bitter cold here in uh, Austin, Texas. I think it's 35. Uh, Dave Ratner has uh, been in the industry for quite a long time. We met uh, several years ago when he was CEO of uh, uh, OpenWave Messaging. He has a Ph.D. and master's in computer science from UCLA. He has an undergrad degree in computer science from Cornell and mathematics, uh, actually computer science and mathematics. Um, His Ph.D. thesis was named Rome, a Scalable Replication System for Mobile and Distributed Computing. It's a lot of words, but I think it hits squarely on what we're going to talk about today. Uh, David, thank you for joining us this morning.
1: Thank you for having me, Jeff.
0: Our next guest is Brad Nicholas, who has worked with uh, Dave in past lives. He's a product management executive and has a particular expertise in in today's smart connected products. He has an electrical engineering degree from Georgia Tech and MBA from Michigan. He's worked at several broadband and mobile service providers and now is, I think in stealth mode, which we'll talk about in just a minute around IoT. Um, Brad, thanks for joining us from Chicago. What's the temperature in Chicago today?
2: You know, it's single digits. Uh, appreciate the invite. Looking forward to the chat here.
0: Well, let's uh, let's dive right in, uh, starting with David. And why don't we start with your definition of carrier grade five nine reliability? Sure. So, uh, thank you for having me, Jeff.
1: You know, the topic of five nines is an interesting one. Uh, the basic definition is around five nines, or however many nines you have, is the percentage of availability or uptime. And so, a five nine system needs to have less than 5.26 minutes of downtime in a given year. Now, originally that was defined to exclude maintenance windows. And so this was really only unplanned downtime. So lately what I've been referring to is what I call true five nines or five nines availability, including maintenance windows, because increasingly in today's mobile world and interconnected world, you can't be down every day from 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. or whatever you're, maintenance window is. And so five nines today really refers to what I call true five nines, which is no more than 5.26 minutes of downtime a year for any reason. And the interesting thing about the mobile operators and the global carriers is oftentimes they have real regulations and um, real metrics that they're forced to hit. In Japan, for instance, anytime there's downtime, the operators have to report that to the national government and it gets published in a report these guys are forced to make sure that their systems are absolutely bulletproof, that they don't need to take maintenance windows, that, uh, that impact downtime, that they never have to have human, automate, human systems required in order to do changeover, in order to do failover, that they can absolutely guarantee that they can run their infrastructure and their systems with less than five minutes of downtime a year for any reason. Mm-hmm.
0: And Brad, let's jump over to you and talk a little bit about web scale reliability. You know, in the last five to 10 years, you've seen Google and Facebook and Twitter that are supporting hundreds of millions of uh, subscribers. And, um, you know, talk to me about web scale, what it's like to to run a web scale organization.
2: You know, it's, it's really about uh, a software focus. It's about comp- commoditization of the underlying uh, 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 hardware um, that's being utilized, Um, the software focus, basically these guys will build, uh, design whatever code is needed uh, to achieve the scalability and reliability goals that they're looking for. And then they go on and most of them uh, go out and open source the stuff that they create. So you've seen over the years, uh, uh, you know, Google obviously built internally their their MapReduce infrastructure to really achieve uh, massive scalability uh, on the back end, on the data tier. Uh, paper was published, and then, uh, you know, and then Hadoop, Cassandra, and all these other, uh, you know, database technologies um, were uh, released to the, to the general public. Um, and there are many, many examples of that uh, at all levels uh, of the uh, web infrastructure uh, that you need out here to achieve scale. And the results are pretty obvious to anybody who opens up a browser. Uh, you know, Facebook is out there with 1.4 billion-plus users. About half of them are mobile now. Uh, none of these folks, uh, uh, you know, use telecom approaches uh, to achieve that, uh, that level of performance. Um, and it's not just web apps uh, that people are clicking on with browsers. It's also real-time streaming applications, and, you know, Netflix, Spotify are the obvious examples there.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, jump back to you, Dave. Um, you built, I think, one of the largest messaging systems. Uh, at, its, at, at the time you built it uh, for a Japanese operator, can you maybe share with us the the architecture and and how that system was built, and some of the inputs and outputs, and some of the factors that impacted the reliability?
1: Yeah, so you know I have built some of the world's largest messaging and communication platforms going into carriers, um, specifically in Japan, but elsewhere as well. You know. The big focus is on testing and reliability going into that to make sure that when they launch it in production, they can actually achieve that true 5.9 scale. It's uh, I wouldn't necessarily use the word conservative, um, but I would say that the operators themselves are very um, gun-shy about making mistakes um, because of the impact of reliability issues on not just their service but their company in general. And so um, a significant amount of testing goes in, a significant amount of architecture review goes in, a significant amount of deep dive into even the langu- the programming languages that are being used, the uh, coding approach that's being used, the approach towards quality assurance, um, testing in multiple labs before launching it in production. And, um and, and all of this is aimed at achieving a state whereby they do not have to have fast follow patches they do not have to have you know constant operations changing out the software um, changing out the infrastructure making networking changes and others that they really focus on the uh let's test it thoroughly ahead of time let's make sure we understand how to achieve a true five nines with this solution let's make sure that it can do that and then let's launch it in production
0: okay well before we fast forward to today's uh you know web type platforms why don't you maybe give us an overview of the um the server architecture and you mentioned software development languages Talk about that, that architecture that you use building messaging platforms or even the last, you know, five, 10 years ago. What, uh, what did those architectures and server platforms look like?
1: Sure. So most of the time on the architecture side, uh, software was split into multiple functions or multiple layers. And the focus from the operator was always how you achieve true five nines and how you achieve that reliability at each layer. And so layers would be defined either as stateless where it didn't matter which component you used you just needed to get to one and so you can use a traditional dns round robin or or other approach to ensure a load balancing approach to ensure that you find an available service Mm -hmm. Um, and then the contrast was there are other services that were stateful whereby you needed to employ heavy ha uh, uh, models in order to ensure that if one went down you could bring another copy up to serve the same purpose Increasingly, operators have been focused on how they move away from uh, traditional stateful models and how they get everything into a stateless architecture with, you know, distributed databases today um, like Cassandra and Hadoop and other kind of technologies to maximize their ability to remove maintenance windows and really operate at a true five nines um, scale. You know, again, I wouldn't use necessarily use the word conservative, but they're, but they. Uh, carriers like proven solutions. They like um, figuring out a model that works for them, and then keeping with that model. And you know, most of the code that's running um, that we've been using to develop uh, these kinds of solutions in the past has been C, C++, and Java. They don't use um, Python. They don't use JavaScript. They don't use Ruby on Rails. They don't use um, some of these. Uh, other kinds of techniques. They like their tried and true uh, methodologies um, whereby uh, oftentimes agile as a development methodology might be used as part of the development of the the process and of the program. They like um, what I will refer to as a traditional waterfall model at the end to heavily, thoroughly QA everything um, to ensure that that there are no mistakes to ensure that it really does run at True Five Nines, to ensure that they don't need to use an agile methodology to do a fast follow patch the next day and the day after that and the day after that.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, we use a lot of uh, Google services, and it seems like they've always got a beta version. So if you talk about the telcos being on one end of conservatism, it seems as though Some of these new emerging communications companies, and I consider Google with Google Talk, and I consider Microsoft having bought Skype, and you've got, um, 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 I guess, Facebook with WhatsApp. All these guys are in the communication service businesses. They're just doing it through an uh, IP platform. So Brad, jumping over to you, maybe you could compare and contrast uh, what Dave shared with us about a traditional telco background with these emerging. Bridging communication service providers, the over-the-top service providers, in terms of their architecture, the types of uh, software development programming they're using, and just how do they, what's their approach to the market?
2: Sure. Uh, well, you know, Dave's done a great job of explaining the focus on resiliency, right? And this whole notion of N-tier architecture for, for web-scale apps, I mean, this has been around quite a while. When, when Dave was deploying those messaging platforms, I was out there with him uh, you know pitching them and you now as a product manager guy doing all that and you know we had N-tier, uh when we've had it for many years um, same thing still applies uh, uh, it's really kind of m plus one at each one of those uh, layers um, the more ends you have uh, the less uh, vulnerability the service has to a particular element in that cluster going down right um, when they go and do a, uh, an update, they can take one server out at a time, update it, and then move on without taking a service out of commission. Uh, I think that's pretty much the way things go across the board. The difference now is we're talking orders of magnitude, larger scale uh, from a lot of the systems that we have out there. Um, the cost of doing something like that is ridiculously low to kind of turn it up, right? You don't need to actually pull out... Uh, Put out physical metal anymore. You just sign up for a web service, you know, a cloud service, and uh, and you're off and running. And then you can elastically scale that to whatever you need. So you know, the real focus is is on scalability for these guys. Um, in terms of languages used and stuff, uh, you know, the world's uh, the world's moved a bit. I mean, computing's moved to the edge. Everybody's running around with uh, with smartphones with uh, massive computing capability and broadband uh, connectivity. So You see the server side moving more to serving APIs as opposed to serving UI. So all of that's being pushed out to the edge of it. And uh, if you're focused only on the API part of it, you can start optimizing kind of the computer science approach that you're using to each of these nodes to build it exactly the way you want. So you are seeing specialized languages come in and being applied uh, in these cases. And it really comes down to the development team making those decisions. And you'll have, I'll give you an example. Uh, Let's say you've got a very JavaScript client heavy type app and you need a server uh, element to it. There's a lot of folks using Node on the server side, uh, which is based on the Chrome, uh, you know, JavaScript VM to actually run the server app. Now, a server guy will sit down and look at that and probably be horrified by the approach that's being taken to it. because it's very difficult to isolate a specific instance in there when you're running this thing at scale but it works for the guys that um, have designed those apps. And I wouldn't suggest that the decisions they make the the decisions they make apply to everybody, but, uh, but certainly there's room for alternative approaches. And as long as they achieve the scale requirements of the service, uh, um, you know, they, they're, they're achieving success.
0: Well, yesterday was a, a big day for net neutrality and uh, increased regulation on the, on the carriers. Uh, so I'm still hearing a lot of clapping and roaring and, and people in the streets in Silicon Valley because uh, the over-the- top guys feel like they've had a big victory and the telco guys are saying, wait a minute, we just invested you know billions and billions of dollars in this fast network and everybody gets a free ride um, So I kind of got this east Coast West Coast thing going where you got traditional telcos from the east and, and Silicon Valley in and the, and the West but in the middle with over the top and Machine to machine and Internet of Things, where are these two groups coming together? Either one of you, op- um, open, kind of, how are they connecting their networks together?
2: Wow, uh, you know that's a that's a big topic. Probably need another session just to cover it in depth. Right? <laughs> um, <clears throat> I would say first of all that uh, you know they've taken some. Uh, some options away from the folks that own the network infrastructure. They can't monetize it the way they want to uh, simply because uh, of the supposed, you know, dem- uh, you know democratic uh, uh, issues around access. When you have broadband providers deciding um, the rules under which you get access to content and services, that makes folks fundamentally nervous. And uh, you know, that's a great democracy kind of pitch, but it's also a bit disingenuous on the part of the folks that don't own the network infrastructure, uh, especially if they're out there pushing video, <laughs> you know. They just uh, basically are told, hey, I uh, can go in here because it's a last-mile connection. Uh, you know, now with this new ruling, uh, I can I don't need to worry about, uh, you know, the quality of my service being delivered and, you know, accessing that end user. Uh, this is going to play itself out over the next couple of years in courts. It, it's not going to stand the way it is, I, I think.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point, Brad. You know, it's if you look at what's happened over the last just, you know, five years with Last Mile, it, you know, it wasn't that long ago that everyone on the Last Mile just had dial-up connections. Now, you know, then, then you move to DSL and broadband and you had a whole other, uh, you know, tranche of applications now it's it's relatively common for people to have webcams in their home that are on 24 7 that people are using to look at live video from anywhere in the world and you know you brought up the notion of of iot and m2m you know look a lot of these industries are really um taxing the network in terms of they have a great idea of how i can have you know, make up something, a a live webcam in my refrigerator so that when I'm at Safeway, I can decide, you know, what items I need and what items I don't need and that, you know, my refrigerator, my thermostat, and my garage door opener can all talk to each other, right? So a lot of these are actually very interesting applications, but have impacts on the, uh, specifically the last mile, um, but the network in general that maybe haven't been thought through. Um, the way that they would be if they were delivered by the operator themselves.
2: Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. because,
1: they're, because they're being developed by an application person who is uh, simply running on top of the network. And so you know, regardless of whether you're a pro or a con, you know, net neutrality, and I'm trying very hard to, uh, to keep that argument under wraps right now, um, the important thing is to understand how those new applications will be brought to market what kinds of impact they will have on the network, Um, because it is relatively common today that, you know, look, if you went and put in your home network, you know, five different applications, all of which had real-time video feeds and real-time audio feeds, that could bring your last mile down to a halt.
2: Yeah, I completely agree with you, Dave, on that. And, uh, you know, IoT in general, you're going from a single-digit number of devices in a premise, uh, you know, a residence or something, you're talking about dozens of devices, right? Uh, and they will be on-premise uh, you know, network traffic, obviously, and then some sort of a real-time cloud layer is going to evolve where th- this this state, this very recent state of these devices is going to get propagated up to these network applications. And then they're going to need, obviously, access so that they can provide kind of the cloud-based uh, enhanced value that folks are expecting out of a true Internet of Things app, you know, it's true smart connectivity connected product. Um, I think fundamentally the vulnerability here on the, the last mile pro, uh, carrier is the lack of, of fundamental choices, right? At the end of the day, and you go market by market, you know, MSA by MSA, uh, there are very, very few options out there if you want true broadband. You know, you're know, you typically down to one service provider, maybe two if you're lucky uh, for, for most urban areas. And uh, you, know, you can imagine what the rural situation like. Um, So the reality is uh, they're going to need to keep building out this infrastructure. The cost per bit of delivering that last-mile connectivity needs to keep dropping dramatically so that the financials make sense for them. Uh, And, you know, with this ruling, uh, it clearly makes it more difficult for them to monetize investment. So uh, it's not over yet, I'd say.
0: What is it? Let's get back to the software development community. And um, you know, we talked about this clashing of the traditional telco with the over-the-top guys, and, and again, MDM and over the uh, Internet of Things are bringing the groups together where they have to play well together. And again, you look at the the FCC net neutrality ruling. They specifically the, the Wall Street Journal referenced, you know, uh, uh, Netflix having to connect with a Comcast. Mm-hmm. But what does it mean to the software developers? So you've got the C++ guys, and you got the Ruby guys, how, 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 how are they going to work together?
2: Brad, you want to take that? Uh, sure. You know, when you sit down and uh, Dave and I have both lived this over the last few years, right? I mean, all of the apps out there that people are using on their smartphones, how many of them were really developed and deployed by the folks that own the telecom infrastructure? You know, I mean, you have to be honest about uh, where the innovation is coming from. If I were a young developer now, uh, I look to my son, for example, who's in computer engineering. I would absolutely uh, coach him, advise him to to get into the application side of things, um, which, by its very nature, is not something that um, a typical telecom uh, is involved in. So. You know, yeah. and what the languages they need to learn they need to be absolute experts on the JavaScript side of things and then the way JavaScript is actually morphed out into all these various frameworks you know including angular and a bunch of others uh, Facebook's doing some amazing things with reactjs uh, uh, so you know that's absolutely fundamental um, I would absolutely encourage them to get into embedded systems as well mm-hmm. so this whole blending of uh, you know hardware and software and you know especially embedded Linux and and you know, not forgetting how to code C. And uh, if they're going to do server-side and enterprise-focused apps, they got to do Java. That would be yeah.
0: my uh, my. Anything? Beat. Anything else?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, analytics. Right. Everybody's talking about all this big data stuff. Big data by itself is worthless, but when you start applying analytics to it, that the uh, you know, real machine learning and stuff. Uh, you're going to need specialized tools for that. And R is the one that comes to mind as the kind of the optimized language that's most useful for data scientists to get in there and, and you know, go off and running as opposed to a traditional third-generation language.
1: Yeah, you know, no, it? I think I think Brad's right. You know, um, innovation has has been driven by, you know, either a large or small set of, of, of software development people who are making interesting applications. And the thing that I love about, uh, you know, net neutrality has its pros and cons and, and everything. The thing I love about net neutrality is making a platform where it's very easy to go drive and launch innovation and and, and and new applications. And for people who are getting into that, as Brad mentioned earlier in the segment, you know, the world has evolved into serving up APIs. And you need to, um, you know, a lot of those APIs are, you know, JS based or or JavaScript or, or other kinds of things. These are the technologies that um, programmers need in order to efficiently, and, um, and, and and easily bring new applications and new innovations to market. And I think that that's important. I am, I will admit, I am a little bit of an old school guy, and so I do believe that there is usefulness in learning languages like C, understanding how memory allocation works under the covers, Not and, and because I think that when you don't understand that, it's easy to say, oh, the programming language will take care of memory leaks for me kinds of stuff. and. That's not always true. And so I think that it's important to understand the fundamentals of how code actually works under the covers and the things that the compiler or the interpreter actually do for you at runtime. Um, But in terms of languages that you need to understand, you know, going into, uh, you know, a Facebook or going into a Google or doing your brand new startup kinds of stuff and going in and. Making a new application, which is going to run over the top on this, you know, next gen network kinds of stuff. Um, I completely agree with Brad in terms of the languages and the skill sets that are required to do that.
0: Okay. Well, jumping back into the telco camp, you know, they've got these traditional BSS OSS systems that are based largely on, you know, frankly, antiquated technology, and they've they've got hundreds of millions of subscribers. They're provisioning. They've got policy and charging and billing and validation of who that. Person is where they are. Um, how how are they moving to this new world of, uh, of programming?
2: NFV, you know, network, ahead, functions, yeah, network functions virtualization. Uh, that absolutely is uh, kind of table stakes for them to go web scale, web scale and telco grade at the same time. So, all of this OSS, BSS infrastructure that you mentioned, uh, this stuff is stable, it's reliable, it does exactly what they need to do operationally. Uh, they need to virtualize all that stuff according to the NFP standardization process that's going through. Once that's there, they overlay uh, kind of the cloud, uh, the cloud management aspects of it. The you know the elastic management, the, the being able to uh, you know turn up instances of particular uh, elements and stuff uh, in a in an application deployment. Uh, all of that needs to needs to happen, and sooner rather than later. Uh, once they have that, then they have a telco operational environment that can scale to web uh, levels. And uh, that's a win. That, that's absolutely where they need to go. Yeah. Let's,
1: let's talk about elasticity for a second because I think it's an important point. You know, the reason that the carriers have always been so focused on testing and achieving reliability before launching it in production is because of how these services were historically deployed. Right, So, in a model where um, the operator needs to go deploy big iron everywhere, lay out the software across the big iron, and when they have load spikes, ensure that they have enough metal and enough CPU capacity to handle those load spikes, they need to be very conservative in their approaches. And in a messaging system, for instance, that may only have its peak traffic once a year on Christmas Day, you need to have enough CPU power to handle that Christmas Day and deploy it, you know, in the entire time. And so that's one of the reasons the traditional deployment methodology inside of an operator has not had the elasticity required in order to um, drive some of these new things that, that Brad has been talking to historically, right? Because, you know, you know, if all of a sudden the operator needs another 20% more CPU headroom, you know, you're now talking at least days in terms of, of acquiring new hardware, installing it, bringing it up, and, and and integrating it into your system. The great thing about virtualization and either the cloud or the hybrid cloud approaches that the operators are now taking is it does give them the opportunity to have an elastic uh, model in terms of deployment of services, which does allow them to finally use some of these new techniques that operators like Google and Facebook and others have used from essentially day one of their deployments
0: mm-hmm. well um, virtualization offers the the promise of lower cost of operation um, but it really brings up the, the question of standards and open source so maybe we could talk a little bit about the tension there you know carriers like standards equipment manufacturers love standards but in order for the carriers really to keep up with the price curve per bit, they have to adopt these lower cost software and lower cost server options. So where are we in that, uh, that race to standards that are open source?
2: <laughs> uh, it, go ahead, Dave. No, no. Go ahead, Brad. I, I was just going to say, I mean, any service provider, is it's in their best interest whether a NAP likes it or not, a network equipment provider. Uh, to encourage the use of open source. And I would just simply point people to LWM2M, the OMA's uh, lightweight M2M standard, and all the work that's going on there. You've got Vodafone partnered with Eclipse on open source IoT. Uh, There's all these implementations of lightweight M2M clients and servers. They're free. They're open source. They're out there. And, uh, I mean, that's unprecedented in my book. I I think that's pretty much the way everything is going to go. There'll be commoditized uh, components that are useful to the network uh, that are based on open source code, um, I think there's plenty of room for a to add uh, their unique value on top of that. It better be some pretty compelling intellectual property, uh, but as long as they can do that, I think they can uh, they can basically build a business from there. Uh, and then the other angle I think that they'll probably be approaching uh, is one on services. They're going to focus on the uh, the, the the expectations that the telcos have about how things need to be deployed and operated clearly, a NEP is best qualified to take that kind of uh, uh, approach and you know and keep the, the operator uh, comfortable. So, uh, but you know the tech that they'll be deploying, it may not be their own, right? It may be a whole bunch of open source based components that they then turn around uh, and uh, you know basically put together. Uh, assemble and then certify, uh, you know, and, and provide SLA support.
1: Yeah. You know, it, historically, um, the the operators themselves and even the network equipment manufacturers have not been um, hugely pro-open source. And one of the reasons for that is oftentimes um, the open source code was more of a reference model of how to go do it rather than something which would operate you know, quote, unquote, at scale. And so you could go have an open source version of a web server, for example, which was perfectly fine for serving up, you know, a certain transaction rate. But if you wanted something which was going to really push the envelope in terms of either 259s or web scale, you had to do something slightly different. And and that was the IP advantage that some of these guys had increasingly you're seeing open source solutions that actually have the right kind of scalability um, to compete in this kind of market. And and increasingly you're seeing operators um, be open to and actually encourage the use of open source for a variety of reasons. And I do agree with Brad that I think part of the secret sauce moving forward will be how you best integrate various pieces of open source where the the, the uniqueness and the intellectual property is, is, is how those things are integrated, how those things are layered together, and how they're brought together to provide a complete solution.
0: Okay. Well, let's close by talking about um, some of the key trends that each of you are seeing. I know you're both looking at uh, some new companies, new products. Um, you know, where are you seeing opportunities? And, and, and then as you look to form these companies and launch new products, where are you looking for talent? Uh, the right software developers that can work on the new open source platforms but have some understanding of what an application is going to do over an RF signal or over an RF network, or what, what, how is it going to perform uh, if it's got to connect to a carrier platform?
1: Yeah. You know, um, a, a, so as I look around, you know, obviously one of the big uh, areas of focus that I'm seeing lately is security. And we could have you know, as I mentioned earlier, we could have a whole session on security, but it's not just because of things like the Sony hack or or other kinds of things. It's, you know, it's fundamental in the nature of all the new services that are coming about. If you take just, you know, 60 second diversion and you think about garage door openers, for example, when the first garage door opener came out, it was A completely unsecure system that simply had a remote that sent a wireless signal to a box that opened your garage door. There was no security in it at all, but it was widely adopted because of the ease of use and the capabilities that it provided, and later security was added in. And you're going to see, you're seeing a similar model follow with, you know, the notion of Internet of Things and all the new devices that you're going to have in your house and, you know, and Wow, look at how great this new capability that I have is, but doesn't have the right level of security? Is it hackable? You know, can somebody really now infiltrate my refrigerator and you know and, and make it you know hotter than it should be? or all these different kinds of things. And so it's not just on you know the network level, but on the device level. And you know, from a holistic level, how do you really provide security? And I'm seeing people, take approaches of building higher fences. I'm seeing people take approaches of, well, let's assume that they get in and, and and restrict what places people can access. I'm seeing security at the database level all the way up through the application and the network. And it's a really hot topic these days that everyone has new budget for, and I'm not exactly sure everyone understands how they're going to spend that budget. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, that's just absolutely brilliant. I totally agree with you, Dave, on the importance of uh, of security. It is grossly, grossly uh, uh, underserved right now. Everybody's rushing a lot of tech to market uh, with uh, you know inappropriate uh, uh, levels of security attention being paid to the code. Right. I mean, you've got these uh, Wi-Fi uh, power outlet adapters. About a year ago, they were completely hackable. You know, uh, and so. If you're going to take an embedded Linux distribution, you better know how to lock it down, right? <laughs> and make sure you don't uh, that you can't easily root it or do some, you know, little exploit on it and uh, and, and get uh, get root access pretty easily on uh, on stuff like that. Security is absolutely huge. I think another area also is as you see this prolif- uh, proliferation, you know, in environments where you have a uh, half dozen devi- uh, devices today. Imagine those having 60 devices, 100 devices in them, right? Within just two, three years at scale, how does that get managed, right? So it's not about the device itself at that point. It's about kind of the gateway layer and that real-time cloud layer I mentioned earlier. All that stuff's got to evolve. Uh, and if you, you know, grab some share in those particular spaces, uh, you know, that's a huge opportunity, I think.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree, Brad. You know, it's the number—the sheer number of devices out there—is um, is growing astronomically. It was, you know, there was a great sixty minutes segment on uh, about two weeks ago on hacking cars, and just the you know the sheer number of computers that are inside a typical automobile today, yeah. it, I think, would astound um, most people in terms of how many different points of entry there are and how many different computers there really are. And so, you know, look, if you're, you know, sitting there saying, well, you know, uh, what languages should I focus on and what areas should I become proficient in? You know, you want to become proficient in in understanding security and security threats. You want to become proficient in figuring out how you, you know, ha- handle systems that manage multiple, you know, tens of hundreds of devices you know, in your home, in your automobile, all interconnected, I think that those are going to be incredibly valuable skill sets moving forward. And it's not the case that just because I use open source, it's, it, it's provably more secure. You still need to have these skill sets so that you can understand where the uh, holes are, where you need to beef that up yourself, or where the possible intrusion sections might be.
0: Well, gentlemen, we are out of time. Brad, Dave, thanks for joining us today on uh, this episode of Coders. We invite folks to uh, join us for our HetNet show with Sean Kinney and our NFV SDN show with Dave, uh, Dan Meyer. In two weeks, we're going to be uh, having our next episode that's going to focus on actually API and API platforms. We've got a guest from uh, Apogee that's going to be coming in. Uh, they were recently funded by, uh, received another round of funding from Kleiner Perkins. So, we're going to talk about that intersection of uh, telco and over the top at the API layer. And, and, gentlemen, I just can't thank you enough for joining us today. Have a thank good day. Thank you.
1: Hey, thank, thank you, you for having us, Jeff.
0: Bye now.